Amen. You can take a seat. I don't know if it's just because that corner that that chorus has the name of our church in it, but y'all like to sing that song. That's it's beautiful. If you are a back row Baptist with us, if you tend to sit in the back of the room, I would encourage you every once in a while sit up front to hear the voice of your spiritual family sing over you is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I love uh, Cole and, and Jetski and Alora and the whole band up here with us. It's so cool, but I love that. That this is one of those things, there's a lot of things in our culture where when people get up to, to, to play music, your purpose is to sit and watch. That's not what we do here at church, right? The purpose of the band that's up on stage, stage is to lead us, to guide us, to gather us, our voices together so that we might praise God and remind each other of the goodness of God together. Amen? It is a good thing to be with you this morning. We are going to be continuing our study in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up. We're going to be finishing up Matthew chapter 9 and looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 10 this morning. You got the ushers would love to put a Bible in your hands. But as we get going this morning, like... As we've been doing this series, Apprenticing with Jesus, what does it mean not only that Jesus came to rescue us and save us, but also to teach and train us to join him in the work that he's doing in this world? We've been seeing a lot, right? When we, a couple months ago, when we got into this section of the book of Matthew that we're in right now, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we took a Sunday and we just read through it. I don't know if you remember this or if you were with us that day, but I told you, keep an eye out for this word authority because it keeps coming up in this section of Matthew, right? That was what stuck out to the crowds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We spent four months going through the Sermon on the Mount. And you come to the end of Matthew chapter 27, and Jesus finishes everything that he teaches, and the crowds, the thing that stuck out to them most was the authority of Jesus' words. But then over the last couple of months, we've seen Jesus exercises authority through many more ways than words, right? We've seen him demonstrate his authority to heal sickness, his authority to calm storms, his authority to cast out demons, his authority we saw last week even to raise the dead. He is Lord of all. Amen? We've also seen, though, in this section, people start to question Jesus' authority, be puzzled by it, even challenge his authority. We saw the way the scribes, when Jesus tells the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, they go, wait a second, he's committing blasphemy by claiming God's authority to forgive sins. We saw the way the, the disciples of John the Baptist are going, hold on a second, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, why don't you keep the same traditions that we do? Not necessarily a challenge, but at least just a, this doesn't make sense, right? We saw the way the Pharisees, when he calls, when Jesus calls a guy like Matthew, a tax collector to follow him. Matthew has him over for dinner with all his other tax collector friends. The Pharisees are appalled that Jesus would hang out with people like that. What is he doing there? At the end of the passage that Todd took us through last week, we see it didn't take long for the Pharisees to move from questioning Jesus to making up their minds about him, right? We saw this like in verse, chapter 30, uh, verses 33 and 34. Jesus heals this man who could not speak. He casts out this demon. The man can speak again. The crowds marvel. They go, never have we seen anything like this in Israel. But the Pharisees go, we know what's going on here. Jesus is empowered by Satan himself. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And it's right here at this moment that Jesus makes a little bit of a pivot. He enters a new phase in his ministry with all these different swirling opinions and questions and even opposition arising to his ministry. 
Jesus shifts into a new face. He's going to continue, we'll see in verse 35, traveling from town to town and teaching and proclaiming the gospel and healing people. But it's also the point in which he begins to look at those who heeded his call to repent, to come and follow him. He begins to look at them and he says, okay, you've been with me for however long it was, whatever number of months it was, you've seen what I do. Now it's time for you to begin to put those same things into practice. Because again, we saw back in chapter four, when he first called his first disciples, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Don't just follow me to watch what I do. I'm going to make something of you. This is why throughout this series, we've titled our whole series to the book of Matthew, Apprenticing with Jesus. This is the point where that idea of apprenticeship comes to the, the forefront, the clearest way so far that we've seen in the book of Matthew. He looks at these guys and he says, you've seen what I've done. Now it's time for you to put this into practice so that you can be able to pass it on to others. We're going to pick it up in verse 35 of chapter 9, and then we're going to continue. We're going to read through the part, first eight verses of chapter 10, because I want you to see kind of the pivot, the transition of what takes place here in this passage. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 35. You can follow along on the screens. If you will, out of respect for God's word, if you are able to, would you stand with me as we read this together? And you can read it aloud with me. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, saying, the king, proclaim as you go, I'm sorry, my fault. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Thank you. That is the word of the Lord that we're going to look at this morning. You can take a seat. As we dive into this, let me just take a minute or two to do a little bit of overview of what we just read so you can see why I, I wanted to read all of that together. Again, look back at where we started in verse 35. Matthew says, okay, you've seen these different vignettes, these stories of what Jesus did with specific people, but guys, there was so much more that he did than what I could record here in my gospel. So this is kind of his, his summary statement. This is what we've seen Jesus do, and guess what? He kept doing it. 
It's like if Matthew was making a movie, this would be that montage scene where you just see a bunch of little clips snipped together. It's like, like in the old Rocky movies when you get the, like the, the Eye of the Tiger music playing and Rocky's running through the streets of Philadelphia and he's doing his one-handed push-ups and all that stuff, right? Did I date myself? Maybe it's the Creed movies. You've seen the Creed movies, the new versions of those same things. But it's that point. He did this over and over and over. These were the regular patterns and rhythms of his life. But then again, we saw that like in the beginning of chapter 10, where then he looks at 12 of his disciples. There were more than that, but he looks at these 12 specific guys and he appoints them as what he calls apostles. That word apostles literally means sent out ones, people who are sent out because that's what he's about to do with them. He is going to give them some of the same authority that we've seen Jesus exercise and then send them out to do the same things that he was doing. Did you catch that? The parallels there, right? Take a look at this. There's Matthew 9:35, and then what he says in the last part of chapter 10 we read. Jesus went teaching, proclaiming healing, and he told his disciples, as you go, proclaim that same kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven's at hand, heal the sick, do the same things you saw me doing. But did you also notice There was a place he told them not to go. A lot of places actually, right? Why would he do that? I mean, Jesus is the savior for all, right? We just sang that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So why does he tell them just to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Here's the basic idea. This is their first test drive. This is, okay, he called them to be fishers of men. This is like their first solo fishing trip, if you will, right? You've seen me do these things. Now I'm sending you out to do this. But there's a limited scope because this is still part of their training, right? It's not that he doesn't care about the Samaritans and the Gentiles. We'll see later on in the book of Matthew, he will even, Jesus himself will go to the towns of the Gentiles and the Samaritans to heal and proclaim the same gospel. But he says to these guys, at least right now, this first go around, this first short-term missions trip you're going on, if you will, here's a limited scope. Stay in these areas. But you can draw a direct line from what Jesus says here in Matthew 10 at this, at this like midpoint of their training and what he says all the way at the end of the gospel and the great commission. First trip, go just to these towns. Second trip, if you will, or the big commission, where are they supposed to go? To all nations. So this trip that he sends them on, we'll see in chapter 10, again, it's, it's, the, it's, it's both an opportunity for them to join in the work of Jesus, but it's also part of their ongoing preparation as apprentices of Jesus. I went through all that to show you this here. This is the best way I could kind of come up with of like illustrating the pattern that Matthew is demonstrating for us at this point in the book of Matthew. Again, starting in verse 35, we see clearly the things that Jesus did regularly. He would teach in synagogues. He would proclaim this gospel, this good news of the kingdom of God. We'll talk more about that in a second. He would heal every disease and affliction. But not only does Matthew tell us what Jesus did in verse 36, he also tells us why he did it. What was Jesus's motivation? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. And then he turns to his disciples and he goes, there is a plentiful harvest. Pray for workers to join the harvest. Pray for workers that don't just go out and do their own thing, but do the same things you've seen me do. Follow my example. 
Oh, and by the way, chapter 10, remember those guys I told you to pray for? That's y'all. They are told to pray for workers to enter the harvest. And then in chapter 10, they are sent to be those workers. But the point in all of it is, look at what Jesus did. Not only what he did, but what drove him, his motivation. Now go and do likewise. But not first go, first pray. The first work that Jesus called his disciples to do at this point in their apprenticeship is to pray. Look again at this, verses 37 and 38. And amidst all the different swirling opinions and thoughts about what's going on with Jesus, Jesus looks at the situation and he goes, there is a plentiful harvest. There are many who are going to see and hear and believe and respond in faith. The problem is not the size of the harvest, the problem is the workforce. I guess maybe not a problem, but, but just the sense of what is needed is workers to join, their laborers are few. And so what does Jesus say to do first? Strategize, plan, roll out a whole method and plan of how to raise up and equip and send people into the harvest. Is that what Jesus says? No, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to train and equip people to enter into the mission of Jesus. That's the very thing Jesus is doing, right? He grabs these 12 guys, walk with me closely. You're going to see, I'm going to model this for you. You're going to do with me, and then I will send you to do. Training, discipleship, apprenticeship with Jesus is essential. It's just not where Jesus says to start right here. Instead, he says, start this. Recognize whose harvest this is. This is the Lord's harvest. Jesus is the Lord, the master of the harvest. And so if you see the immensity of the task, go to him. Ask him for the workers that are needed. Ask him, pray to him. But ask for what kind of workers? Again, that's the whole point of this pattern that I showed you before. Pray for workers to join the harvest who will do the same things that Jesus did with the same motivation that Jesus had. Oh, and by the way, as you pray for workers, don't just pray for others to do this. Pray that you and I would be those kind of workers. That we would be those who not only do what Jesus did, but are driven by the same motivation that Jesus had. That's the pattern that we see here. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out those workers and pray to the Lord of the harvest to make us those workers. Do you see that? I wanna unpack this a little bit more, but, but what I want you to say, I, I don't just wanna teach about this or preach about it. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I kind of feel like anytime we come across a passage in scripture where God commands his people to pray, if all we do is talk about it and we don't pray, we kind of miss the point, right? So in the same way, I'm gonna take some, a few minutes to just walk through more of what we learn, what we see in Jesus' example. But then what we're gonna do is we're gonna have some time to respond together in prayer. Jean Kingery, who many of you guys know is our disability coordinator, she's a great woman of prayer. And I asked her if she would just kind of come up and lead us in a time of prayer on this passage, both as something she could pray for us and then we can pray together. So we'll do that in a few minutes. But again, let's walk through this. What is it that we see in Jesus that we are called to pray for in ourselves and for those who are sent? I also think it's kind of cool that uh, we didn't 
We didn't master plan this, but we've been working with Alana, like, like Steve said, for a couple years. And the fact that the chance that she has to share with the congregation about this next little short-term trip she's taking is while we're in this passage, that's kind of cool, isn't it? We get to pray that God would empower her and the Higbees and the team there in Osaka in the same ways that we see in this passage and for ourselves. So let's do this. Go back with me again to verse 35. Again, we see Jesus went from town to town, but Matthew's point isn't just that Jesus went on like a sightseeing tour. He emphasizes these three regular tasks that Jesus did as he went from town to town. Teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every one of them. I think that Matthew is actually really purposeful in the ordering of these three things because I think that the one that's in the center is the one that's in the center. It's the central one. The central activity of Jesus' ministry is this proclamation declaring, announcing the gospel of the kingdom. Announcing good news. That's what that word gospel means. It's not just like a genre of music, though that's great music too. It means good news. What was the central thing that Jesus did as he went from town to town? Good news, everyone. The kingdom of God is here in me. God is acting in Jesus to bring redemption and salvation, to rescue his people from their enemies, to bring judgment on those who stand against him, to usher in peace and restoration under his good rule. And Jesus says, good news, the kingdom is here because I am here. That was the central thing that Jesus announced. This is what, again, Matthew's just kind of repeating what he said Jesus started with. Back in chapter four, after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with Satan, he comes back into town empowered by the Holy Spirit and he says, y'all, it's time. The kingdom of heaven, the good rule of God is here in me. So repent, turn, change not just the direction or actions of your life, change that fundamental allegiance in your heart to me whether your trust has been in your own performance, whether your trust has been maybe in their time cozy up to people in positions of power so that hopefully you can get what you want in the end or at least not just get beat up when they get mad, whatever it might be, even if your trust was in our ability to, to bear arms and rise up against the people that stand against us and win the day through our own power and might, Jesus says to all those different groups of people, come to me. Because the good rule of God is here in me. That same word there, preach here, is the same word that's proclaimed in what we read about Jesus in chapter uh, 9, verse 35. It was the announcement, the declaration, not convincing, not a super polished argument necessarily, but just good news. This is happening. You need to know about this and you need to respond. The other two activities that we see there in verse 35, I think they kind of serve to support this central activity of proclaiming the good news of the good rule of God, teaching and healing, right? Well, how do these fit together? I would say this. If the kingdom of God, the good rule of God, bringing restoration and peace and healing to all things has arrived through Jesus... And Jesus says to repent, well, if I do that, if I do turn and trust in Jesus, what difference should, that, difference should that make in my life? That's what the teaching ministry of Jesus was all about. 
Here's what it means to live under the good rule of God. God's good rule is here in me. And here's how you walk faithfully in obedience to God as king. That was the whole point of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We spent four months kind of over the new year in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, that was the point we kept reiterating. The main point of the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus explaining, here's what it means to live as citizens of God's kingdom among the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is going to continue to teach a lot. There's five main teaching sections in the book of Matthew. Sermon on the Mount was just the first. The second one is what we find in chapter 10, which we'll come to in the next couple of weeks. But here's the other thing you need to understand about the teaching ministry of Jesus. He didn't only teach with words. He didn't only teach by explaining things with his mouth, but also by giving an example through his life, through his actions. He would model for people what it looked like to live under the good rule of God. He called people close to him, not just to hear the information that he would give them, though that was essential, but to see the model, the example in his life. That's what the teaching ministry of Jesus was all about. He wasn't just giving them good information because he was training them to join him in that work. And then the third activity, this idea of healing every disease and every affliction, Again, what does that have to do with the central proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom? I think it's this. Jesus announced that God's good rule was here. And as he healed people, he demonstrated what God's good rule is like. What kind of a king is he? Now, the people in Jesus' day, you've got to get this for a second. They had a much better idea, almost a completely different idea of what it means to live under the absolute rule of a king than we do. We've been trained to appreciate the fact we live in a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people, right? Ultimately, we hold the power in our, our view of it, right? That's not the, the, the pretension that the people in the first century had. They lived under the iron fist of the most powerful empire of the time, Rome. Absolute power. And how did the Romans get their power? Through force through having the biggest, baddest military the earth had ever seen at that time, beating up anybody who stood against them. And how did the Roman Empire maintain their power? Through force, through having the biggest, baddest military the earth had ever seen at that time. And if you try to go against us, we will ground you into dust, basically. That's what the rule of Rome was like. And then in the midst of that, here comes this dude from a backwater town like Nazareth saying there's a new kingdom at play now. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But what is that kingdom, of, kingdom like? That's what we learn through the healing ministry of Jesus. The good rule of God that has come through Jesus, he does not rule through heavy-handed intimidation and fear like Rome did. His rule brings healing and wholeness and restoration. We see so many of Jesus' healing miracles take place for people who were on the outskirts, kind of ostracized from society by whatever ailment they had. And Jesus not only cured their physical ailment, he reintegrated them into society. God's kingdom is a kingdom in which outsiders are welcomed as family. That's what this kingdom is like. 
The healings were about showing what kind of king Jesus is. He is a good king. He is a healer. But get this, not only is he good, Jesus as king is also sovereign. He is all-powerful. You cannot stand against this king and expect to come out on top. Look at what happened when demons came in contact with Jesus. The demons were dead set in their rebellion against Jesus, and yet they had to obey his words. So don't try to stand against this king. You will not succeed. And yet at the same time, if he is a good king who brings healing and wholeness and peace for those who come under his rule, why would you want to stand against that king? So repent. Come to him. If that right there is the pattern of the ministry of Jesus, what does it mean for us to pray for workers who will do like Jesus did? What does it mean for us to pray that we would be workers who do, who do like Jesus did? Let me make a couple comments on that. I would say first, I think the central thing for Jesus needs to be the central thing for us. Proclaiming, announcing that the good rule of God is here in Jesus. That's the central task that God has given us as his disciples. I don't know about you. I tend to be one of those people, I get easily intimidated about the idea of sharing my faith. What if someone asks me a question I don't know how to answer? I study the Bible a lot. I'm grateful for that. But yet, what if someone asks me a question from the Bible I don't know how to answer? Or especially a question about science. I fell asleep in science class in high school. I don't know much about it, right? Comparative religions, all these kind of things. Sometimes that can paralyze us to go, I don't know if I know enough, so I don't want to say anything. Maybe for some of you, it's the flip side. You are highly motivated by things like apologetics, comparative religions. You want to know how to defend your faith or even point out the flaws or the gaps in other faiths. And that is good. That is very good work to do, provided that your motivation in it is the same compassion that drove Jesus, like we'll talk about in just a minute, and not just the desire to win the argument, to destroy your opponent and put a viral video online. That's not the heart of Jesus. What we have to learn from the example of Jesus is that our primary task is not to be debaters or convincers, but proclaimers, to announce the good news of what God has done through Jesus, to proclaim it, share it. To whatever extent you understand it now, you will learn more as you share it. I love the story of the guy in the book of John who was born blind and Jesus healed him and they haul him in front of the synagogue and they interrogate him on what he knows about Jesus. And remember what he said? All I know is I was blind and now I can see. I'm announcing to you the good news of what Jesus has done for me. That is what we do. Yes, our, our goal, our job is to seek to communicate this news as clearly and relevantly and compassionately as we can, which is why we ought to study and practice and learn together how to share this. But the central work of Jesus is our central work as well 
tell people what God has done through Jesus. Declare it, announce it. The way that Jesus will say it later in in, uh, Matthew chapter 13, he goes, your job is like a farmer throwing out seed. Throw it everywhere. You're not the one who causes it to grow. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives growth, who opens blind eyes, who gives people the ability to see and understand the truth. Our job is to declare it, so let's do it. God has acted in Jesus to rescue people from our biggest enemies. And hear me, the biggest enemies you and I will ever face was not the Romans. It's not even the Russians. It's not even the Republicans. That all starts with ours. That's why I did it that way. Or the Democrats. (laughs) The biggest enemies that you and I will ever face are three. Satan, sin, death. Here is the best news. Every single one of those three enemies was defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's good news. Not only that, that Jesus, he rose again from the dead. And you know where he is right now? He is at the right hand of God ruling over everything. Every enemy is being put underneath his feet. And one day that Jesus will come back. He will bring final judgment to all who stand opposed to him. That will be terrible. But on the backside of that will come the restoration of all things, the raising of the dead, the renewal of creation, and God's people ruling with him in his presence forever. That is good news. Amen? Amen. So if you have not yet turned and trusted in this Jesus, repent today. Turn, trust in him. He is a good king. If you have trusted in Jesus, Tell people what he's done for you. Announce it. Declare it. The Spirit gives growth. Our calling, like Jesus, is to announce what God has done. Our calling, we see here, is first to pray for workers who will proclaim the gospel like Jesus did. And pray that we would be those kind of proclaimers. Our calling is to pray For teachers like Jesus, who will both explain and give an example of what it means to live under the good rule of God, and for us to be those kind of teachers ourselves. Our calling is to pray for healing, that people might see the goodness of the rule of God. Now, this one's interesting. We need to talk about that one for a second. What is our relationship with this whole healing idea? Because we see very clearly in this passage that Jesus entrusted to these 12 apostles his authority to heal every disease and every affliction. We also see in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit, when he's given, continues to empower these apostles to heal in different ways and several others as well. But we don't ever see anything in Scripture that the expectation is that every follower of Jesus will be able to heal with a word or a touch. This is actually one of those things in which Christians can kind of think differently about it. Some Christians hold that like this gift of healing, the ability to supernaturally heal through a touch or a word, it kind of ceased with the apostles. When they died, kind of that, that, that phase or time ended as well. 
Others would say, no, there still can be this gift of healing that people can exercise to demonstrate the goodness of God. And my point today is not to get to the bottom of that whole debate, but I would just say this, though we differ on how that gift of healing might operate, here's one thing on which we can all agree. You ready? God can heal. Amen? God is no less able to heal today than he was in the days of Jesus. And so what do we do? We pray. We pray for healing. We pray that God would demonstrate the goodness, the restorative, life-giving nature of his kingdom by healing those who are sick and suffering. Even though, like Todd talked about last week, we pray knowing that sometimes prayers get answered like Paul's did in 2 Corinthians 12. No, Paul, I'm not gonna take that off of you. I'm not gonna remove that suffering that you have. But you know what I'm gonna show you? I'm gonna show you how sufficient my grace is for you. I'm gonna show you how my power is made perfect through your weakness. And so knowing that, we still get to pray for healing. We still get to say, Lord, would you relieve this? Would you show, not just to make our lives comfortable or easier, but would you show in an undeniable way what a good king you are and what your kingdom is like? This is why each Sunday we we invite people, if you want, to come up to the prayer room over here to pray with someone if there's something that you're dealing with. That's one of the main things we get to pray for people. Lord, would you heal? That's why every month on those Tuesday nights we do those elder prayer nights because one of the things that James 5 talks about is that if people are sick and hurting and downtrodden, one of the things that it tells them to do is call the elders of the church together. Have them anoint you with oil and pray for you that you might be healed. If you could ask any of the six and almost eight of us elders what our favorite thing to do is as elders of this church, that's about the the top right there. Getting to sit with people in the midst of sickness and suffering and hardship and grief and pray that we might see the goodness of God's kingdom displayed in their lives. The next time we do that is going to be coming up on May 9th at 7 p.m. We meet meet once a month for that. If you can't make that time but you want us to pray for you, get a hold of one of us. We love dropping in and getting to pray for people at different times. But it's not only the ways that I would say that we pray for healing. I think this idea, we see the healing ministry of Jesus showing the restorative nature of God's kingdom. And that's what drives us to serve and care for and support each other in a bunch of other ways. That drives us in like our counseling ministry here. That drives us in just the way we seek to care for tangible needs that people might have. We recognize that there are more types of healing needed than just physical ailments. Sometimes there's healing that's needed emotionally as you've gone through really hard things. Healing that comes as you wade through grief with the loss of a loved one. Healing in marriages, healing in families. Not only that, the way in which we seek to serve and care for those that tend to be seen on the outsides of society or sometimes those we can overlook as a church the way we care for and support and elevate them, it demonstrates the same thing that Jesus did when he would heal the outcasts and the leper. You're part of the family. You are valuable here. We show the goodness of God's kingdom there. But there's one thing, I wanna take a couple more minutes with you. One more thing we need to look at, not just what Jesus did through teaching, proclaiming and healing and so forth, but especially why he did it. Look again there at verse 36. When Jesus went through the towns, when he saw the crowds, how did he respond emotionally? He had compassion. I'm on the wrong slide. You're not even looking at what I have. There it is. He had compassion for them. 
He saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think this is incredible. Guys, stop and think about this for a second. Matthew is giving us such a gift through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is letting us into this perspective that he got as one of the people who got to walk most closely with Jesus. In verse 35, he tells us kind of the external actions, the teaching, the healing, the proclamation that Jesus did. Everyone could see that. But here in verse 36, he says, guys, as I walked with him from town to town, as we got to be up close to him, and we saw all those things that he did. But you know what we began to see? It all came from this deep place of compassion in the heart of Jesus. That's beautiful, isn't it? What motivated Jesus tirelessly to serve and work and heal and proclaim? Compassion. That word compassion, it can be translated as, as pity or sympathy or even just like deep longing and affection. The root idea of the word is kind of graphic. It actually is talking about someone's internal organs. That's where he felt it, right? It, in some ways, it's the way in we in our day, we talk about our hearts. Not just the organ that pumps blood through our bodies. We also talk about hearts more metaphorically as, a, as that center of our emotional life. The center of our desires, our affections, even our will, our decision-making. So if that's what Jesus, or what Matthew's giving us a glimpse of here, think about this. When Jesus, the perfect son of God, God, man, together in one person, when he walked among us, when he walked around people as messed up and twisted and jaded and divisive and foolish and self-righteous and lacking faith and living in our failure and all of that, what welled up from the innermost part of his being? Compassion, affection, everything in us that we see as ugly, as unseemly, that we want to hide from others for fear that they might reject us because of it. Jesus saw it and it did not repel him away from us. It drew him to us. What kind of king is this? That when he sees us harassed and helpless, it arouses such care and compassion in him. He is a king worth giving your life to. He is a king worth trusting. He looked at people and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. They need a leader. They need someone to guide and guard and protect them who actually cares about them. Who isn't just trying to get something from them. And that's who Jesus came to be. I love this because there is something that kind of confronts our pride in that verse, isn't there? When Jesus looked at people just like us, he felt compassion because he saw us like sheep wandering around clueless without a shepherd. He sees that in us, whether we recognize that in ourselves or not. Some of you might bristle at that very verse because you're going, hey, I, I wore my hat today that says I'm a lion, not a sheep. Don't tell me I'm a sheep without a shepherd. This is who Jesus says we are. We are in need of guidance. We are in need of protection. We are in need of one who deeply, deeply cares for us. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Not like the hired hand who runs away when the wolf comes because he doesn't care about the sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd who even lays down my life for the sheep. But even though that's who Jesus is and who he clearly portrayed himself to be, it is also clear that Jesus did not expect everyone to just flock to him. 
He understood, and we will continue to see throughout the book of Matthew, that oftentimes it is the people who are most deluded by their thoughts of their own self-sufficiency, their self-reliance, their self-righteousness, who not only would refuse to come to him as their good shepherd, but would then begin to actively oppose and attack and try to destroy him. And yet I love what Jesus says later on in John 10 when he says this. I know, and amongst all that, you know what happens? I call, and those who are my sheep, they hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. As I proclaim and teach and heal from town to town, you know what happens? My sheep hear my voice. There is a bountiful harvest. There is the need for more laborers because as we announce the goodness of who God is and what he has done through Jesus, sheep will hear. They will follow. So again, where are you at with that today? Have you heard the voice of Jesus and recognize not just a good moral teacher, another religious leader, a big person in world history, but seen him as the shepherd that your soul needs? Have you come to him? Have you followed him? And if you have, if you have come to Jesus as that great shepherd that you need to protect you and guard you and guide you, let me say this to you. Look again at the compassion that drove Jesus. Do you resonate with that? As he looked at the crowds, he felt compassion. As you look at whatever crowds you may be around in your community, your workplace, your school, in broader society, when you watch or read the news, how do you respond to what you see? Do you respond with compassion like Jesus did? Or with something else? Maybe anger. Self-righteousness, oh, those people. Fear, desire to escape, find some nice place with trees and cheap houses where it'll just be better. Do you respond with apathy? That was the one that got me as I thought about this. I took for a walk in my neighborhood the other day, just praying through this passage, asking God not only to send workers, but make me a worker. And I realized, wow, I don't feel compassion. I walked my neighborhood, which was so much on my mind during COVID, like all of us, because it's where we were, right? And I realized I'd lost sight. I walked around where I live and I went, wow, I don't, I don't feel anything. I honestly haven't thought about these people in a while. Lord, forgive me for that. Lord, would you give me your vision? Would you show me what you see? Here's the amazing thing. The compassion that Jesus felt that we are called to model as we follow him doesn't come naturally to any of us. Which is why he says, pray. Ask for it. Ask and you will receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be given to you. The privilege that we have as God's people is not only to ask for others to join the work or ask that we would join the work, ask for others to have compassion. We get to say, Father, I honestly don't. Whether it's apathy or anger or self-righteousness or fear, I don't want that. I confess to you that, that that is wrong. That is out of step with who you are, Lord Jesus. Would you give me your compassion? Would you help me to see people like you see them? When I drive over the hill over the 118 and I see Simi Valley down below me, would you give me eyes to see a bountiful harvest? 
Would you compel within my heart the need for laborers to join in that harvest? Would you compel within my heart that you have called me to be one of those? That's what this passage is meant to do in us. We pray for laborers. We pray that God would make us those laborers who do what Jesus did, driven by the same heart. Here's what I'm going to do. I mentioned we're going to have Gene kind of lead us through a time of prayer here before we leave, just guiding us through this passage. I'm going to ask her if she would come up. The band's going to come and kind of play lightly underneath her um, and then lead us in a song afterward. But even as Gene comes up, let me just throw one thing out to you real quick. A really practical thing from this passage. About six months ago, we were looking at this passage, I think in one of our elder meetings, and Todd shared with us something that he'd started to do. He set a reminder in his phone, like, a, like a, an alarm in his phone for 9.35 every morning to pray this passage, Matthew 9.35 through 38. So for the last six months, there's a bunch of us that have been doing that. Uh, to be honest, I kind of lost sight of it. You ever have that where like you have a constant reminder in your phone and it's there every day so you stop paying attention to it? So like two weeks ago, as I'm looking at this passage, I was like, oh, Lord, I want to refresh. I want to remind myself to do this. I want to invite you to do that with us. Even right now, pull out your phone, go to your alarms, set an alarm for 9.35. You can do it a.m. or p.m. Whatever time you know you would be able to protect in your schedule, it's time to pray. Put in there Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Let's make a practice of praying the very thing that Jesus calls us to pray for here. Amen? Is that doable? If you don't know how to set an alarm on your phone, look for someone much younger than you. They can probably help you with it. It's a way we can serve each other in the body. But again, okay, Gene, come on up and would you lead us in a time of prayer? Christian. Powerful messages on how do we, how can we be apprentices, real apprentices following Jesus' model? If you just bow your heads with me right now, Father, we are going to just review uh, your thoughts, your heart today. Oh, Father, you showed us by Jesus his compassion that was so compelling. And it was, it was real. It was for the broken lives. It was for the hurt people around him. It was for so many people that whether they were on a grief journey or they were just absolutely in distress, Father. But he came to them with a heart of compassion. Father, we confess right now that sometimes our hearts just get so hard. And so, Father, we're going to take just a, a few seconds to think of those people around us that we have hardened our hearts against. You know who they are, Father. You're going to remind us as we think right now of the people that may be near, it could be family members, it could be neighbors, it could be people at work, but people that we have, um, just bring those faces to mind, Father, right now.
Thank you for letting us remember those people that need extra love, that need a touch that only you can give us through the power of your Holy Spirit, the compassion that when your heart is broken, ours will break also, Father. And Lord, we think in the scriptures today where Jesus said, pray first for the workers. Pray first. Don't just set an agenda and go, but pray. So, Father, we're going to take just a, a few minutes, actually a few seconds, to think of those people around us that just need a gentle nudge from your Holy Spirit to be a vibrant worker for the harvest, for people that desperately need you. So, Father, will you just give us this time right now to be quiet, to pray for those that you are calling And Abba Father, I know that when Chip and I came back from India five years ago that you said you weren't finished with us. Retirement was not in our vocabulary, nor is it found in your word. And so I pray specifically for those that are here in the congregation that are in their, their third, third of their lives, Father, that may have extra free time, that you are calling to, to help the body. Help the body, Father, show them if it's a gift of hospitality or driving someone to a doctor's appointment. But Father, you have called not just this third third, you have called every one of us here. So Father, I'm gonna just ask right now that your Holy Spirit will come and just the unction of your spirit would touch hearts to say, yes, I want to be the worker. I wanna be the one to serve Jesus, King Jesus here at Cornerstone and be about your business, Father, proclaiming the good news, healing those broken hearts. I thank you, Father, for these next few seconds as you would just reveal into each one of our hearts what you want us to do with this challenge today that Christian has given us. Abba, thank you for this time that we can reflect, that we can think through the practicalities of apprenticing with you. And thank you, Father, for each family represented here. I thank you for the Holy Spirit as he empowers us, Father, for impossible tasks. I thank you for King Jesus, for his sacrifice for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.